Hello and welcome to the podcast of Vineyard Church here in Maryville, Tennessee. We post our Sunday messages here each week, as well as our conversations episodes, which include interviews, special announcements, and in-depth teaching. You can visit vineyardchurch.us to learn more about us or to access the audio archive. You can also subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, Apple, or Google Podcasts. And now, here's the episode. Welcome to the Vineyard. Really glad that you're here. My name is Aaron. If you're a guest, I'd love to meet you. If you're not a guest, I'd still love to meet you. Um, really glad that you're here. We're going to continue a series that we started last week uh, called How to Pray. And uh, we're working our way as well through a, a book uh, by the same name, How to Pray, A Simple Guide for Normal People, written by Pete Grigg. So we'll reference that along the way. And and uh, this follows sort of a, a simple acronym. And I think acronyms are cheesy, and I try not to use them. But sometimes they're just good, and they work. And this acronym is good, and it works. So we're going to work our way through it over a few weeks here. And this one is Pause, Rejoice, Ask, and Yield. And that, of course, spells pray, Pause, Rejoice, Ask, yield. Um, Last week we talked about pause, and specifically we discussed the need for silence and solitude. And I I think those things have been um, pretty intensely mislabeled in our context. I think when we think of silence and solitude, we think of like pretty weird stuff. We think of the that that's just relegated to the work of monks and nuns and hermits and the religious equivalent of a teacher's pet, you know, the people who hold your hand too long and make eye contact for too long and say, bless your brother. And it's like, okay, that's what you do. That's like Jesus's super squad. Okay. You do silence and solitude. It's not what normal Christians do. And I think that's incorrectly labeled. So hopefully last week we were able to see that actually for Jesus, who is our example and our model in everything, Silence and solitude was like standard operating procedure for him. Like it was the most normal thing in the world that it all the time. And hopefully from that we can see that for anyone who is a follower of Christ, then this is something that's actually, it's actually really fundamental uh, to our relationships with God. Um, Blaise Pascal said this very famously. He said, all of humanity's problems stem from man's inability to sit quietly in a room alone. For what it's worth, I do think that's an overstatement, but like maybe not a huge overstatement. Like maybe it's not that big of an overstatement. So it's a big, it's a big deal. It's a big deal that we would pause, that we'd have silence and solitude with the Lord. And for that reason, I'm going to spend another week on it. Now, I purposely did not tell you that last week because I thought probably you wouldn't come back for a second consecutive sermon about silence and solitude. I, I was actually concerned that maybe on the way home, some of you were thinking, wait a minute, did he, just, did he just spend half an hour telling me to shut up and go away? <laughs> yes, I did. It was probably closer to 40 minutes, actually. Come back next week and we'll do it again. So I decided not to tell you that. Um, <clears throat> but we're going to take a little bit of a, a, a different different angle this time. Last week we talked about how difficult this is. 
um, this week a bit more about why it's so important and a bit about what we're actually supposed to be doing in all that silence and all that solitude. And we think about silence and solitude, time that we're just still, that we pause before the Lord. We could think of it this way. It's kind of like your, your pregame. All right, like college football started, we're thinking about pregame rituals. For football, the pregame rituals extend for many hours, sometimes days, um, because it's such a big deal. And that's kind of the deal with prayer. Like you need a little bit of, uh, little bit of pregame. It's how you get ready. Um, stillness, solitude. And valuing those things uh, is a sign of maturity. Kind of shows that maybe you've been there and done that a little bit. So <clears throat> here's the thing. I... Not to brag, but I am the assistant coach of a middle school girls basketball team. So no need to applaud, but it's something I do. And I'm a glorified cheerleader, uh, so that's it. Uh, but I love it. And here, here's what I've noticed. Uh, because we're responsible, conscientious coaches, we make the girls have a, a stretching routine before every game and before every practice, Okay. And it is hilarious to me how much these girls don't care about stretching. Like, not in the least bit. They come back, and it's a, usually it's a practice, you know, right after school. And they are giving, at best, 5% of their effort and 0% of their focus. They're just, this is when they, you know, catch up. How was your day? You know, they're, like, telling stories about the day. And they have these sort of marching things that they do where they're supposed to, like, touch their toes, and they just sort of do this and talk and chat because they don't care. They don't care at all. Okay, so there's that. Now let me compare and contrast that to when I sometimes go play basketball with a bunch of old guys. Very different. Stretching, dead serious. Dead focused, zeroed in, okay? Because after you get about past, for me, it was about 35, you're no longer playing to win. You're playing to not get hurt. That's all that matters. And I remember a few years ago, a bunch of us from the church, we were playing. There's this dude who came and played, nicest guy. Uh, he was in his mid-60s, and he, we ran full court three hours, and he was game. He was going. He was getting after it. Okay, it was beautiful. And this guy, so intense, man. And the stretching, he came 20 minutes early just to start stretching. And keep in mind, we started late, okay? But he needed 20 minutes plus the late, and he set out the first game always just to stretch. And he's given, and here's the thing nicest guy could not talk to him during stretching. He was zeroed in, he was focused, he cared about this is the most important part of the night for him because he knew chances are, if I don't do all of this stuff, then my hip will probably explode inside of its socket on the first play. The stakes are different, they care, okay? But the middle school girls, they're invincible. They're not going to get hurt. They just, okay, how do, what did you do today? And they're just making a total joke out of it. Now, it's still important that we have them stretched and they could still get hurt. And I'm only saying this because a couple of the girls from the team are here right now. And you need to stretch, okay? But old people, we really need to stretch, okay? Here's, so it's like, a, it's like a sign of maturity when somebody's got a good pregame. I think it's the same thing with prayer. It's a, it's a sign of maturity when someone has the wisdom to recognize, I got, I got to take a few minutes and I got to get my mind right before I really get going here. And really, that's the idea. It's about, it's about getting your mind right. That's why Jesus said that your prayer game, your pregame, pardon me, your pregame prayer game uh, involves uh, getting alone 
and it involves shutting out all the other things that invade your mind. Let me reread you a verse we looked at last week, Matthew chapter 6. But when you pray, Jesus said, go into your private room, shut your door, pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So here's the, the sad truth, unfortunately, about me. Um, I can lose the plot like, and miss the point like, in an instant. It happens almost instantly. Like I can do all the stuff and like, be with Jesus and finally eventually get to a place of like, real perspective you know, like that moment, okay, I see things with some real clarity. I actually know what my values are. I see what my life is about. You zero in in those moments of clarity. I have to do a lot of work to get there. The way that I, um, a couple of things that I do in order to try to get there is I, I remind myself often in sort of the, the, the solitude and in the stillness um, that I am a son of the king and I'm a subject of the king. In fact, sometimes I'll do a, a, like a, what's called a breath prayer where you, where you breathe in one thought and breathe out another. And I'll breathe in, I'm a son of the king. I'll breathe out, I'm a subject of the king. And we talked about this a few weeks ago about the idea that we're the children of God. And what that means is that we actually have more status than any creature in the universe other than God himself. That's our high and lofty status as children of the most high. We are sons and daughters of the king and then in the next breath, I remind myself, I'm a subject of the king. My life is not my own. This is not for me. This is not about me. This is for the glory of God and for that alone. And eventually, I sort of get that perspective. I breathe that in. I breathe that out. And eventually, I, get, I, I, realize I can see up from down. I get a moment of clarity. And then it's just, it is stunning to me, guys. Like, I can leave the house then after that, and I'm... Before I get out of the driveway, lose the plot and make it about me again. It's incredible. I'm like a, I'm like a, a finicky old guitar that just won't stay in tune no matter what you do. Or like, a, like an old cordless phone. You guys remember cordless phones? I'm not talking about cellular phones. There were phones with cords and then there were cordless phones. Um, they sat on a little charger all the time. I thought those were really cool and uh, when I was really little. And I remember we, we upgraded one time to a 900 megahertz cordless phone. <laughs> and I remember thinking, as I do now, I have no idea what a megahertz is. Sounds like a lot. 900 of them sounds like a whole lot too. And I remember when we were unboxing it, I was like, this is going to be so cool. I think I was like 12. I was like, oh, this is going to be so cool. I, I can like carry it around. And if people call me, they never called me. But if people call me, I got it with me. And, and I remember thinking, maybe we lived about a mile from the mall. I was like, maybe I can like carry it to the mall. I'll be like Zach Morris over here with a phone in my pocket. I'm going to be so Cool. I was so excited about that. We got out of the box and charged it up. I could barely get outside of the house before you lost signal. I'm like that. I cannot go far from my base at all or I will lose signal. And I just, I have to be recharged all the time. And that's what, that's what silence and solitude create space for and allow to happen. They let us, they let us recalibrate. A sort of pregame stillness helps me Helps me get and, and hopefully keep perspective. And the confession, the truth is, guys, I've been talking about this for two weeks, and it's, I think it's probably more because I need it more than you need it. I, I don't come from a place of expertise on this. I'm speaking from my own weakness because I'm not good at this. 
I'm a, I am an action, goal-oriented person. And holding still and meditating on the beauty of God, and I probably shouldn't admit this from the platform, but sometimes to me it can feel like a waste of time. And I think, why? God knows he's awesome. He doesn't need me to think about it. He needs me to go tell people about it. That's what I think. I have to remind myself, Aaron, no, hold still. The fact is, God doesn't need you for anything at all. Let me read you a couple of verses in case you disagreed with me and thought, no, Aaron, God does need you. Here's what the Bible says about that. The God who made the world and everything in it, he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in shrines made by hands, neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives everyone life and breath and all things. So I remind myself, okay, yeah, no, God doesn't need you, Aaron. You can hold still for a minute. You're a human being, not a human doing. You're actually not that important. The world will not spin off of its axis if you just hold still for a couple of minutes. And no, I remind myself, Aaron, God doesn't need you to think about how beautiful he is. You need you to think about how beautiful he is. And if I don't stop and again pregame some stillness, if I don't take a pause, then I will rush right into prayer in that sort of uncalibrated fog and right along with me I will bring my anxiety and my misperception and my fears and all the things that are knocking me off track. I'll bring them right along with me and then I will in turn pray selfish foolish, probably ineffective prayers. So I need it. I think, I think we all do. As we said last week, if Jesus needed it, probably we do too. Um, okay, so Matthew 6, let's go verses 9 and 10. This is Jesus teaching his disciples how to pray. He says this, Therefore, you should pray like this, Our Father in heaven, your name be honored as holy. If You probably didn't memorize it in this translation, so this could be upsetting for you. Same ideas. Your name be honored as holy. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Um, really significant here. He starts with our Father. So he's teaching them how to pray. He's two words in, and it's pretty shocking already. I know that doesn't stand out to us. Our Father, sure, we've heard You know, this prayer is often called the Our Father. It doesn't sound strange to us. But the thing is, God is rarely called Father in the Old Testament. Um, Essentially, no one defaulted to that type of father language. All right, it's here and there in the Old Testament, but it's very rare. Um, The default in the Old Testament when people prayed was, was Yahweh. That's when they thought of God. That's the word that came to mind first, Yahweh. And that, that was a word that was considered so holy that it wasn't supposed to be said out loud. And even when it was written, they would abbreviate it. It's too holy to be spelled out. That's how they were used to referring to God. And I want to be very, very clear. Um, that is all right and good and totally appropriate. Um, and I don't want to dial down that sense of reverence or that sense of all that. And the transcendent holiness part is next. But it is fascinating to me that he doesn't start there. He starts with Father. 
He starts with family. He starts with intimacy. He starts with relationship. Jesus' prayers always defaulted to father language. That was the standard. But his disciples, I'm assuming this is the case, I think they just figured, well, yeah, of course he does. He's the son of God. He should refer to God as father. And the shocking part here is that he's telling us to say that too. Hey, guys, you're all children of God. So this is just my observation. Uh, you can take it or leave it. I, I really Maybe a, a Bible scholar could pick it apart. But it seems to me that the Old Testament trend was to begin with the blinding, transcendent glory of God. And then, and that would be shown to the masses. And then, for the very rare few, there was friendship, there was access, there was intimacy that might come eventually. So if you're a church kid, you know some of these stories. If not, you can tune me out. It's okay. But um, remember, God comes and settles on Mount Sinai, and it's this whole thing. It's this whole production, man. Lights and cacophony, storms, clouds, glory clouds. It was super intense. You couldn't miss it. And everybody saw it. And the people were inclined to run away, which is good because the rule was don't even touch the mountain when God's on top of it. But Moses climbs the mountain and he alone ends up talking with God face to face. Or another example, the glory descends um, at the temple dedication. This actually happens twice because there were two temples. And it's this amazing, like awe-inspiring, triumphant, glorious transcendent display, you know, just, just fire and glory for all to see. But only the high priest was allowed to go past the veil and enter into the most holy place. God parts the seas, right? And everybody gets to see the glory and power of, of God on display, but it was later just the prophets who got to spoke with him as a friend. And so the trend that I see is that it started with this transcendence and glory and awe and reverence and wonder and for the few, there was intimacy and there was friendship. But then in the New Testament, that pattern seems to, to flip. Just think about it. First of all, the incarnation uh, really sets a tone. Okay? So we've got the king of glory lying in a manger, okay? being held, being reliant. Okay? And then from that, it just continues. Jesus becomes a friend of sinners, spending time with anyone who wanted to come his way. He was accessible. He said, come to me, all who are weary, and I will give you rest. Come to me, all who are weary. Do you know who that is? Everybody. Everybody. Everybody's weary. So he's like, everybody, come to me, everybody. But then it was his absolute closest friends, his three closest friends in the world. They're the ones and only who went to the Mount of Transfiguration and saw his glory revealed. Or um, Jesus' best friend, I think this is clear in Scripture, Jesus' absolute best friend was John, John the Beloved. He's also John the Revelator. He wrote the book of Re Revelation. and uh, We could see Jesus uh, or, or John so comfortable, so casual with Jesus. We see him leaning on him at the Last Supper. And it was John who is the one in Revelation who gets to see the glorified Christ, remember, and falls before him as though dead. If you don't know those stories, it's okay. 
Here's what I'm saying is it starts in the New Testament flips, and it seems to start with access, with friendship, with intimacy, and then move toward transcendence and glory. And interesting, that, that pattern is how Jesus taught us to pray. Begin like this, our Father. Begin with, with intimacy. And from there, you move to your name is holy. So again, the verse is, our Father in heaven, your name be honored as holy. I just want to point out, that's the pattern I highlighted earlier when I said I'm a son, I'm a subject. Father in heaven, you're holy. <laughs> I'm a son, I'm a subject. I'm a beloved child of God, but don't, can't forget, don't forget, this is not my deal. This is his deal. Our Father in heaven, your name be honored as holy. And therefore, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let me, um, I want to sort of restate that. Reword that in sort of more modern vernacular, and just so you know, I this is I'm, I'm being a little loose with the text. I'm not trying to be flippant or irreverent at all. I just I'm trying to put it in ways that we might say it. It might sound a little bit more like this: Dear God, I acknowledge who you are, and I acknowledge who I am, and there's just an enormous difference between the two. Like you're you, and I'm me. And I see the difference. Please help me not lose sight of that difference. And because of that, I want what you want. That's your kingdom coming will be done. I want what you want. Um, Please do what you want, whether it's what I want or not. It's actually a really hard prayer to pray. Um, This is what's called orientation before intercession. The idea is to get some perspective Right out of the gate. Pull the camera back. See the big picture. That's who he is. That's who you are. You're the king of glory, and I'm me. And if I want my will more than I want your will, then I'm just wrong. And that's really important perspective. It's still pregame, by the way. This is What this is is calibrating our minds. This is aligning our hearts with the ultimate truth of the universe. He's the king of glory, and we're not. And specifically what this is, and I don't want to run past this part, this is an invitation to awe and wonder. To just be amazed that I I get to be his child. And he's absolutely, absolutely holy and resplendent and glorious and mighty, all that stuff. It's, It's really easy to forget how ridiculously amazing it is that we can just talk to God. That's insane. Have you ever thought about that? He's him. You're you. I love you. He's him. And you could just talk. That's ludicrous. Have you ever just thought about it? It's so ludicrous. So I could just, wait a minute. Let me get this. I can just meet with God anytime I want to. Anytime. Anytime. I can meet with him. I can't do that with my wife. She's often unavailable. She's busy. It's not bad. Because she's a great wife. But I can meet with God as much as I want. He's always available. I can set an appointment with him and he'll always keep it. The only one who ever lets it down will be me. Like, you should be dumbstruck by that. And if you haven't been for a while, let it hit you. The wonder of, of what we have in life with Jesus, it's, it's slippery. And wonder in general is slippery. Things that we're so amazed by, it's like, whatever. You know, you get used to things quickly. 
A couple of weeks ago, I can't believe this. A couple of weeks ago, I got on an airplane, and I had a bunch of work to do. So I just sat right down and pulled out my laptop, and I got right to it and dug right in. Anyway, when we landed, I realized that for the entire flight, I never once looked out the window. Not once. Didn't look out the window a single time. Guys, I was sitting in a chair in the sky. I was experiencing the miracle of flight. I was soaring through the clouds over purple mountain majesty and above the fruited plain. And it was all there for me to behold. And I landed safely and smoothly in Chicago only 82 minutes later because we were charging ahead. The miracle of flight. And I didn't look out the window once. I remember my first flight. I was 17 years old. I was on my way to preach my first youth, group, youth camp. I did a terrible job, but that's not what the story's about. <laughs> got, got on an airplane on my way to D.C. This first flight, I was dumbfounded. Made sure I got a window seat. And I stared out that window and fought back tears and prayed and was struck by the beauty of our king and the wonder of his creation. I, my mouth agape. I, didn't, I only did that. I had a cramp in my neck afterwards because I was plastered against the window the whole time. I had to peel my forehead off the glass. There was a big oil spot left from my forehead because I spent the whole time gazing out the window in awe. And two weeks ago, I got on a flight to Chicago and never looked out the window. It's really easy to let the amazement dull and the sense of wonder can just go away. This is why we need to pregame, you know? We see that before we jump in, take a minute and calibrate. Like, wait, hold on a second. Wait, I get to do what? You kidding me? I get to do what? The same approach, by the way, goes for sex and marriage, but that's a different conversation for another day, but put that one away. Wait, are you kidding me? Like, I'm just, so I can talk to God, I'm just in the throne room now, because, because I decided to think about it for a second, and now I get an audience with the king of glory who dwells in unapproachable light. Yeah. So the idea here is maybe before you get to your list of requests slash complaints that you take a second and let what's happening break your brain because it should. Now, um, I, I will level with you about this. Sometimes prayer for me is boring. It is. Sometimes I can go for like two minutes and then I can't think of anything else to say. And my mind is racing with all the stuff I need to do that day or the list of things that I've probably already forgotten or the things that I'm upset about or frustrated by or annoyed by. And I'm just so often completely distracted, my mind bouncing all over the place, racing here and there. I, recently, um, <laughs> this is ridiculous. I've been, I've been praying about something that I'm angry about. Like some, just something gnarly and I'm mad about it. 
And it's not a sin to be angry. I want to be very, it's not a sin to be angry, but man, does it clear a path towards sin. <laughs> and I'm real sinful, and my mind can get there real fast. And yesterday, yesterday, I caught myself sinning mid-prayer. Mid-prayer. It's a new low. I'm sinning while praying. In so many ways, guys, I'm just I'm bad at this. I get bored, distracted, selfish, whiny disinterested. Apparently, I can even sin mid-prayer. I'm guilty of all of it. But here's the thing. With, and this, but only with rare exceptions to this, all those things, all those distractions and this and that and the candle still and what I say, all of those things, all of those issues are essentially solved when I take the time beforehand, a little bit of pregame, and I start by taking a pause getting perspective, aligning myself with ultimate truth. I'm a son, I'm a subject, I'm a son, I'm a subject. Somebody messaged the church this week and said that what she often does is, I mentioned breath prayers early, um, she'll breathe in, God is good, and breathe out all the time. And breathe in all the time and breathe out, God is good. That's beautiful. If it is, it's just, it's just, okay, all right, let's get perspective. You're you, he's the king of glory, God is holy, God is holy, God is all caps holy. I'm entering the throne room of God. I have an audience with the divine and resplendent king of glory. Let's get perspective. W.S. Boyd said this, prayer is weakness leaning on omnipotence. And when, when I take some time to dial into that reality first, it gets a lot better. And the net result, it looks a lot less like me fighting to stay focused and not get bored. And it ends up more like what the psalmist wrote. Let me read you a couple strange and wonderful verses. Psalm 131. Lord, my heart is not proud. My eyes are not haughty. I do not get involved with things too great or too wondrous for me. Instead, I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. And he repeats, my soul is like a weaned child. A weaned child is a child who no longer breastfeeds, right? So what that means is, the picture that he's giving us, is a child that's able to be held by its mother and not be screaming for something. that It it could just rest and be still and be happy to be in their mother's arms and he said that's what my soul is like in the arms of my father now look i know hear me on this i know that prayer can't always be like that right like when i just described as i said last week we very much can and should pray as we go and the little cracks of time that come available we can use those for prayer and and sometimes we're frankly way too agitated to get anywhere near what i just read about feeling like our soul is like a weaned child in the arms of the father so be it honestly so be it that doesn't mean you're doing it wrong okay I want to be very clear. It doesn't mean you're doing it wrong. People feel guilty about prayer. I've been telling you that I really kind of struggle. I'm not great at it. But look, you can't do it wrong. Okay? I was explaining this to a friend this week. Um, Prayers like pizza. Okay? Some of it's better than others. But it's all good. There's no such thing as bad pizza. Uh, I think Little Caesars is probably the worst pizza you can buy. 
I guess so, like one time you'll get it and it's just like an extra gallon of sauce. The next time it's bare. Sometimes it's got more cheese than you can imagine. Sometimes it's like three little sprinkles. It's totally inconsistent. I've been told that their crust is, chemically speaking, mostly glue and paper. That seems right. I think it's the worst pizza you can buy. I love Little Caesar's pizza. It's pizza. It's always good. It's always good. I mentioned a couple weeks ago I was in Chicago. I had authentic, deep-dish, Chicago-style pizza. I think, I know there's not a lot of New Yorkers in the room. I don't care. Bring it on. The best you can get in the world. Just the best. I'm not picking a fight. I love you and your pizza. I love all pizza. But deep-dish, like, this is as good as it gets. They're both so good. They're both so good. Some of it's better than other. None of it's bad. None of it's wrong. So I'm not saying if you're doing it, you're doing it wrong. If you're doing it, it's right. Roland Rollheiser said this, the only rule of prayer is to show up. <laughs> That's it. Or, or as it says in the book that we're reading together, he, I love it, he says it several times, keep it simple and keep it up. That's it. Keep it simple, keep it up. Keep it simple, keep it up, for sure. So no guilt, no guilt here. I'm not saying you're doing it wrong. You're not. If you're doing it, you're doing great. But again, at the core, though, of life with Jesus is this, as a, this concept of our soul being weaned before the Lord, you know? Stillness and intimacy with God. Okay, one more thought. One more thought. Um, for a whole lot of reasons, <clears throat> um, folks think of prayer, I think primarily, as when we ask God for stuff, okay? And for sure that's part of it, totally. Um, and it's not wrong to ask God for stuff. In fact, it's wrong not to. He tells us to ask for stuff, so we, so we should. No, it's not bad. It's fine. In two weeks, I'm going to teach on that very thing. It's a huge, huge deal. Okay. But prayer is not just asking God for stuff, and it's not even primarily that. So here's the thought. Let me just think on for a bit. What should be the ratio in our prayer of time spent allowing God to shape our will versus the time that we spend with us trying to shape his will? What do you think that should be? And by the way, I believe our prayers can shape his will. And that's sort of a gnarly statement. We'll get there. I think it happens. But what should be the ratio of time in which we invite him to shape our will versus us trying to shape his will and get him to do what we want him to do. I know the obvious answer here I, it should be more about God impressing his will on us and not the other way around, I know, but just think about that for a minute. Is that how you approach prayer? Is it? Because it's, it's definitely not my default of an opportunity for God to shape and conform me to his will. Where do you spend more time in prayer? Trying to shape God's will, allowing God to shape yours. Quick story. Before um, Jesus, the, the night before Jesus went and chose his disciples, uh, he went to a mountaintop alone and he prayed all night long. All the way through the night, he prayed. And here's a question. What do you think he was saying all night long. What do you think he was doing? Praying all through the night. Remember, the next day he's going to pick his 12. What's he doing that night? Do, do you think he spent the bulk of the night 
just sort of negotiating with the father. Just saying, I really, hey, look, I really like John. I feel like I could really connect. John would be great. Peter, please don't, I don't. Just not that guy. He's a lot. Not, no, not Peter. Not Peter. And I, I saw the list you were working on, and I thought I saw Judas's name on there. That's, are you crazy? No. Like, no, 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 no. Look, I, I've got some things. How I want, this is how I want this to go. Like, do you think he did that all night long? Uh, Jesus actually gave a, another uh, pregame prayer instruction. This is in Matthew 6, 7, and 8. He said this, When you pray, don't babble like the Gentiles, since they imagine they'll be heard for their many words. Don't be like them, because your Father knows the things you need before you ask Him. So he wasn't doing that. He wasn't doing that. It's an interesting thing that the next morning heads out to choose his 12. And this is how the Bible says that happens, Mark 13 and 14. Afterward, Jesus went up on a mountain and called out the ones he wanted to go with him. And they came to him. Then he appointed 12 of them and called them his apostles. Interesting, verse 13. He says he calls out the ones that he wanted. Jesus, who was very clear, I only do the will of the Father. I only do what I see the Father doing. I only do the Father's will. And then he goes out and says, I want that one. That's who I want. That's who I want. He he picked the ones that he wanted. Why? Because he spent the night in prayer, not negotiating and trying to get God to submit, the Father to submit to his will. Instead, he was saying, Lord, not my will, but yours be done. I want what you want. I want what you want. I want what you want. I just want what you want. And here's the thing. When you're in that place of total surrender before the Lord, where genuinely what you want is, the, is what the Lord wants, in those moments you can actually trust your gut. If you're looking at a decision saying, I don't know if I should go left or I should go right, and I'm waiting for God to tell me, and he won't tell me. If you're genuinely surrendered to the Lord, I mean putty in your hands, I mean on your face before the Lord the night before, all through the night, that surrender to the Lord, do you just do what you want? You just go with your gut when you're really surrendered to him. He's got a thousand ways to nudge you this way or that. In the end, he had been so shaped through a night of prayer into the will of his father that he just went and picked who he wanted because what he wanted is what God wanted. I hope that makes sense.